morning. Good to see all of y'all today. Glad to be here. Excited to dive into God's word. So if you would join with me, um, let's pray and let's not waste any more time. So let's pray. Uh, Father, you're a good God. You are a God that takes care of all of the details. Uh, And even though you don't disclose to us what those details are, help us to realize the blessing that comes from not having to worry about all of the things that are on your mind, Father. Help us to be fueled by that and to work for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Nelson Mandela says this about life. There is no passion to be found in settling for a life that is less than the one you are capable of living. There's no passion to be found in settling for a life that is less than the one that you are capable of living. How many of y'all want that to be true of your life? How many of y'all want to live very, very full lives and not waste an ounce of it? That's what we all want. Nobody wants to live an empty life that doesn't mean anything. All of us want to live lives that are full. We want to maximize all of what we have. Waste comes when you have something and you don't use all of it that you can. Um, I've got a good friend of mine that I've known for, uh, what, probably 14 years now. Um, and he has this amazing gift when it comes to wings. Um, he doesn't waste an ounce on the wing. What is an appetizer to some is a full meal to him, right? So folks will eat wings and at the end it'll there's like meat left and gristle. When he gets done with them, them joints look like fossils. They are, they're clean and they're crisp. He doesn't waste an ounce. And I say that it's a gift because you could put the same size plate of wings in front of him and somebody else and they'll leave and they'll say, it wasn't enough. And he'll leave and say, I'm more than full because he doesn't waste an ounce. Listen, the same is true when it comes to all of our lives. Solomon, or the guy that wants us to think of him, writes the book of Ecclesiastes for all of us who live lives with these very, very full plates, right? So we have jobs and responsibilities and kids and hopes and dreams and opportunities. We all have full plates, but we find ourselves not living the full lives that we want to. And what he's trying to say in this book is it's not because you don't have the resources right in front of you. It's just that you're leaving so much meat left on the bone. Solomon is somebody that's trying to help us live this very, very full life. And so the book starts off with him saying, right, what do we gain out of this life? And the first four chapters or him saying, I want to be full, so I'm going to make life all about me. And the conclusion that comes to is that being self-absorbed, being full of yourself, is not the cure to emptiness. It's just a downward spiral into a bottomless pit. Get all the knowledge, get all the money, get all the pleasure, get all, all the accomplishments that you want to, and it's not going to fill you. 
chapter 5, he, he brings God into the whole thing. And as he starts to look at life through God's perspective, what he finds out is that worship, money, authority, hard times, they aren't all that life makes them out to be. So the rest of the book is him just seeing life's true colors. And then the tail end of the book, in the conclusion, he's going to help us see this, that you know, the key to getting a full life has nothing to do with what you gain, but what it is that you give. And that's the secret, the paradox of Christianity, that fullness doesn't come from gaining, it comes from giving. It's this unique joy that's reserved for the Christian. So as Sal Uppleman talks about starting to live this full life, how can we live these very, very full lives? I think he draws our attention to Ecclesiastes 11. So if you would turn with me there, um, if you're going to use one of the Bibles that we gave to you, it's on page 361. Um, as you turn that page open, you'll see that the font is very, very small. So if you don't have good eyesight, it'll be up here on the screen. Briar has magnifying glasses for anybody that can't um, see those words. But turn with me to page 361, and I'm going to set a little bit of context uh, as we get here. Solomon is a guy that, as he writes his book, talks about death a whole bunch. But he doesn't talk about death to depress us. He talks about death to impress on us that we are still alive, right? Death is like fire. Fire can destroy in two ways, directly or indirectly. If you are in a house that's burned, ready to burn down, fire can either destroy by burning or it can destroy by sucking all the oxygen out of the room so that you choke to death. So fire literally sucks the life out of the room. And that's what death can feel like at times, right? Death is going to depress us if it hits us, but also if it's talked about too much, it can feel like it sucks all the life out of the room. But that's not what he's trying to do when he talks about death. When he talks about death, he's trying to use the fire of death the same way somebody would use a fire to heat somebody that has been paralyzed by frostbite. He tries to bring it just close enough to us to say, hey, do you feel the discomfort that you get when we talk about death? And if you say, yeah, then what he says is good. That means you're still alive. Don't waste your life. And so... Ecclesiastes 10, he starts off, and this whole chapter is one that's akin to the book of Proverbs, and he's trying to tell us what to stay away from. The book so far has helped to paint things, and it said, hey, if you live really, really good, you're still going to die at the end. If you live bad, you're going to die at the end. So you can think, it really doesn't matter how I live, but Ecclesiastes 10 is all about, it does matter. Foolishness is its own punishment. We we haven't come into our points yet, but I just want to stop here and just try to apply this really quick. Foolishness is its own punishment. Life does not turn out well if you live foolishly. And look how he starts off in 10 verse 1. He says this, dead flies make a perfumer's oil ferment and stink. So a little folly 
outweighs wisdom and honor. If you look at somebody else and say, well, at least I'm not as bad as them, what he's saying is if yours isn't perfect, then your heart is still flammable and foolishness is a spark. And all it takes is one spark to cause a forest fire. All it takes is one act of foolishness to really mess things up. So here's, what I, here's how I want to apply that to us right now. One, surround yourself with friends, with real friends, with wise friends. Surround yourself with people that you trust enough to tell you, I think what you're doing is stupid. Surround yourself with people that you trust enough to be able to look past your charm and the excuses that you make and they can cut through all of that. Surround yourselves with people that even when they disagree with you, you're convinced that they love you. Not just that, but here too. The Bible is your friend. Read your Bible daily. Read your Bible often. If you don't know where to start, pick the day of the week that you're in and read the Proverbs for that day. So today is the 23rd. Has anybody read Proverbs 23? Here's a list of the things that it talks through. Chasing money, arguing with fools, disciplining kids, envy, how if you surround yourself with people that just party and club all the time, then they're going to go broke and it's going to rub off on you. It talks about giving your heart to thirsty guys or girls. So if anybody here is in the room and is going to go to work in the morning, if there's anybody in the room that scrolls through Instagram and feels like I want what they have, if there's anybody in the room that has bad kids, if there's anybody in the room that has all of those things, these, th that one proverb speaks to all of what's going to go on in your life. When Jesus was battling Satan in the wilderness, he didn't beat him with miracles, but with memory verses. The Bible is your friend. Find people that'll tell you what you're doing is dumb and will love you enough to tell you those things. And find folks that will point you to the Bible and to wisdom but that's not the main point. All of that was free. Ecclesiastes 10 is all about staying away from foolishness. It just takes a little bit. But here, you can waste your life by doing wrong things. And so he gives us that to tell us, all right, don't be a dummy. But you can also waste your life by not making the most of it. And Ecclesiastes 11 is all about how it is that we make the most of our lives. And I think that he gives us three things. So these three steps to help us make the most of our lives. And the first point is this. Live in the moment, but look to the future. Live in the moment, but look to the future. We've talked so much about how death is going to come and tomorrow is not promised. But I want you to know when somebody says tomorrow is not promised... It is not the same thing as saying tomorrow is not probable. It's not the same thing as saying tomorrow is not a possibility. When somebody says tomorrow is not promised, it is not a death threat saying I will kill you. That's not what they mean. Tomorrow is a very real possibility. 
ability. And the quickest way to sabotage your future is not to plan for one. You may not have one, but it's possible that you will have one. And if it's a possibility, you have to plan for it. Last week, we talked about what it is to enjoy life. And sometimes people easily replace living in the moment to living for the moment. And those are not the same thing. Live in the moment, but look towards the future. Starting at verse 1, it says this. Send your bread on the surface of the water, for after many days you may find it. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what disaster may happen on the earth. That's confusing a bit, so let me explain what he means. Historically, some folks have looked at this and thinks that he's just starting to talk about investment, being wise with your money. So send your bread on the waters. Folks thought that that meant like maritime trade, right? Like set, put your bread or the things that you have on these ships and invest them and they'll go out and then they'll come back to you. Be wise with the investments that you make. I don't think that's likely because nobody invests in hopes that they'll just get back what what they sent out, right? You lend to your friends, and you hope that they'll give you back the things that you lend out, but you don't invest money just to get what you put in. You want more. I think that in the context of this book and where we're getting ready to head, I think that he's referring to charity, to give of ourselves, to do good work. All of this, verse 1 through 6, is all about the good works that we do. And if we think of it this way, then verse 1 really is as plain as it sounds, right? What takes place if you take your bread and send it across the water? Get soggy, right? There's there's some of y'all in here that y'all don't even like your food to touch. And so on Thanksgiving, you'll move your bread over so that the juices don't flow because you're like, yeah, it gets soggy and heavy and I don't want it. And his whole thing is this, the charity that folks would give out, sometimes it can feel like sending your bread on water. Like, all right, I'm going to do this good work, but I really don't think, it seems like I'm wasting this work that I do. It's just going to soak up. It's going to fall to the bottom, and I'll never see it again. I'm never going to see these funds that I give to folks that are poor. I'm never going to see these good deeds that I give to folks. And so what he's saying is, no, 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 no. Listen, stop worrying uh, uh, about the fruit of your return and just start working. Live in the moment, but don't live for it. Use what you have to do good. And so he starts off and he just talks about send your bread on the water for after many days that you may find it. Don't be concerned that you're not going to get a return back. Proverbs 19 says this. Kindness to the poor, listen, it's not a waste. Kindness to the poor is a loan to the Lord. And he will give a reward to the lender. It's like God saying, let me hold something, and I'm good for it. I'll pay you back. Chris Tucker had this joke years ago where he said, do y'all have those friends where they borrow something something so long that you have to borrow it back? 
that they keep it, that they can't repay or they won't repay? Well, what he's saying right here is God ain't like that. God can repay and God will repay. What you and I need to do is we don't have to worry about when it'll come back. We need to have the confidence that it will come back and start now and give to cast our bread on the waters. Start now to give. And here's where I want you to start. You don't even have to look outside of this room. It's easy when we start to talk about give to the poor, give to folks in need, that we come here and because we all have clothes on our backs and shoes and smiles, that we think that there aren't people that are a part of our church that are actually in need. But there are. And one of the beautiful things about the people of God about history is God has always made provision for his people to have food by the generosity of the people that have more than what they need. It's a travesty when there is food in a household and somebody starves. The first funeral that I did seven years ago was for a girl that I didn't know, 15 years old, and her mom starved her to death in her room because she was mad while she fed the other two kids. It's a travesty. And it's much more of a travesty when we have a church full of people who have more than what they need and there are some folks that go without. Start here. If, it, if it's inconceivable to you that somebody is a part of our body and they would have need, then I would say is dig a little deeper. Don't be content with how are you. I'm fine. Press in. Ask how they are. Find ways that you can help. Be proactive. Deuteronomy 15 says this, and this is going to help us make sense of verse 2. Give to him and don't have a stingy heart when you give. And because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all the work that you do. So it's not just just give, but give generously. Verse 2 says this. Give a portion to seven or even eight, for you do not know what disaster may happen on the earth. That first line, it seems confusing until we take it in context with uh, things that are said in the Bible. Seven is seen or, or viewed in the text as the number of completion. So much so that Peter comes up to Jesus one day and he says this, hey, How many times should we forgive somebody when they sin against us? Seven times? And what Christ says is, no. Seventy times that. People forgive until it hurts. Until it hurts really bad. Keep on. Of which Christ is the model. He forgave until it hurt. It cost him his very life. And we rejoice because he was generous in the fact that he gave his life to poor sinners that didn't deserve it at all. And so when he says here, no, no, give a portion of seven or eight, it's, no, it's not about an exact number. It's that the states of our hearts should be like Christ and we should be inclined to give more than less. That we shouldn't just try to meet some standard, but we should give and continue to give until it hurts. Do you think of money that way? Or your time that way? When was the last time that you gave until it hurt? 
When was the last time that you saw a need that you couldn't meet off of what you had in your wallet and you were so burdened that you sold something that you treasured dearly just to give? Right at the end of verse 2 when he talks about, for we don't know what disaster may fall on the earth, he's not saying make sure you have a 401k so that if things go bad, that you've got something to fall on. What, what he's saying is we have this outward mindset of trying to work is there is going to be a time where you can't give. There will be a time where you can't be as generous with what you have. You are going to die and you can't take it with you. So don't die in such a way where people have to pry God's blessings out of your cold hands, but die empty-handed. When was the last time that you thought about your life that way? And you didn't just live for the moment, but you lived for the future, for somebody else's future. And here's what I want you to see. If you're not a good steward, it's going to be impossible for you to do this. If you have a full-time job and a full closet and no money in your savings account, you may be living for the moment. And it's going to be very hard for you to get. If you have a full house, a nice big house, but you can't afford to put furniture on the inside because you're so consumed about appearances, it may be hard for you to give hospitably. If your time is always consumed with you pursuing enjoyment for yourself and you have no margin, it's going to be very hard for you to give generously. That's why we don't live for the moment. We live in it and we enjoy what we have, but we look towards the future ways that we can use our lives to serve somebody else. If you spend all on yourselves, then you rob yourself of the ability to be generous to others. We live in the moment, but we look towards the future. There may be some of you all in here that say one, hey, John, you're right. I wish that somebody would do this for me. I just really need, uh, I wish so-and-so was here to hear this because I'm in need and I really have need and I don't have very much to give. And to that, I would turn your uh, attention to Proverbs 11:25 that says this, a generous person will be enriched. The one who gives a drink of water will receive water. Your ability to be generous only goes as wide as your belief that God will provide goes deep. If you really believe that God will provide all of your needs, then even if you don't have much, you'll share what you have because you know that God is faithful. There may be some of y'all here that say, John, you're right, you're true, I need to give more, so here's what I'm going to do. After we leave, I'm going to go home, and we're going to sit down, and we're going to create this whole plan, and then I'm going to get into financial peace, and I'm really going to learn how to give so that someday in the future, I'm free to do what you've prescribed. And to that, I would point you to my next point. We want to live in the moment and look towards the, the future, but point two, the next way that we live a full life is this. 
Look, but don't stare. Look, but don't stare. If you, have, if you had a uh, mom like I do, well, and a wife like I do, then you've heard or, or you hear, close your mouth, don't stare. There's times where Chandra and I will be out and we'll talk and enjoy and she'll point out something or someone um, and she's like, yeah, look at that right there. And so I'll turn and I'll look and I'll just like stare and it distracts me from what's right in front of me. And she, she says, hey, hey, no, look, but don't stare. That if you stare and you constantly try to plan, then what's going to take place is you're distracted from what you can do that's right in front of you. Don't let your, what should be a glance towards the future turn into a gaze and distract you from the work that God has left you to do right now. Verse 3 says this, if the clouds are full, they will pour out rain on the earth. Whether a tree falls to the north or the south, the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. That's very, very plain stuff. What he's saying is you don't have to be a meteorologist to know that when you drove, it looked like it was going to rain outside. If a tree falls, what he's saying is the most important thing is not for you to step back and speculate as to how it fell, but to know the tree is in the middle of the road and it's going to stop you from getting where you need to go. And we can spend so much time staring at these things, worrying about what will come or what may come that we never work. So what he's saying is stop worrying Start working. Look towards the future, but don't stare. Look look at verse 4. One who watches the wind will not sow, and the one who looks at the clouds will not reap. Here's what he's trying to say. There is a such thing as bad timing. At a funeral, you don't want to stand up and tell a bunch of jokes. At a wedding, you don't want to stand up and give a eulogy that you prepared for the bride that you hope to read on the day that she died. There is a such thing as bad timing. Listen, we know that there's bad timing, but what you and I instinctively feel like is, since there's a such thing as bad timing, there has to be a such thing as perfect timing. There is a such thing as bad timing. There's not a such thing as perfect timing. And what he's trying to say right here is if you spend all of your time staring, all of your time saying, well, I would do this, but it looks like it's going to rain. Well, I would go and sow, but it looks like it's going to rain. Well, I would evangelize and share my faith, but it looks like that ah, they're mad at me and I think I need more time to build up. I would go and move into that place, ah, but my, my kids are young and there's not good schools. I would go to be a missionary but I think I want to wait until my kids are a little less impressionable and they have better immune system. He's saying, if you stare, you're never going to get anything done. I think what he's trying to guard us against is this type of functional laziness that's produced by good intentions. Jesus makes the same point in Matthew 25 where he talks about this parable of the talents. And so he has these guys and 
Jesus tells the story of a master, of a good master, that goes to these guys and gives them gifts that they do not deserve at all. Ten talents, five talents, one. And he says, go to work, I'm going to come back. Well, he comes back and the first two guys go to work, and do you know what the last guy does? He worries. So he comes back and the first two say, look at all the stuff that we worked out for you. And then he comes to the last guy and the last guy says, you know, I was thinking. I was thinking that, all right, I sat back and I put a lot of thought into this. Um, You're a hard master and you reap where you don't sow. I mean, you just give folks money and you expect them to bring this yield. And, you know, the stock market's not best. It didn't seem like the best time. And I only have one talent and these guys have five and ten. So I didn't want to lose it. I was worried about the results, so here's what I did. I buried it, and now you came back, and I gave you back what you had. I put a lot of thought into it. I had good intention. I was meaning to. I was fixing to. I was researching. And do you know how the master responds to him? He doesn't say, that's okay, try again next time. But he calls him two things. He says this. You lazy. Think all that you want to. But at the end of the day, what he's saying, it's functional laziness because you you thought, but you actually didn't do anything. But he doesn't just call him lazy. He says, you lazy and evil servant. He categorizes it as evil. Not, Not just wrongdoing, but not doing all of the good that you could do. God providing him with these gifts and him not using it to serve people that were in need. And the same can be said with us about what God has done. God gave us gifts that money can't buy. He gave us breath in our lungs. If you're here right now, even if you haven't had much, he's provided you with the food and clothing that you need to survive. Free of charge. Paul says, what do we have that we earned? All that we have, God gave to us. And he gave it to us, not just to not sin, but to do good. That's why the passage that we read here in James, right? It says, he that knows the good that he ought to do and doesn't do it, to him it's sin. There's things that God has called us to do, and I want you to know, sometimes good intentions can be the greatest impediments that actually keep us from doing what it is that God has called us to do. As a church, especially in the day and age that we live in, where everybody everywhere is spending all of their time talking about doing good, be careful about being sucked into what everybody is fitting to do or preparing to do or meaning to do. Be careful about people that can wax eloquently about What should take place? Or trees that fall to the north and the south. Be very cautious about 
spending time or becoming the type of person that would spend more time talking about gentrification than making friends with somebody that's not in your same tax bracket. Be careful about becoming the type of person that talks about the water crisis that goes on in Flint and not the type of person that would buy a bottle of water from some kid on the street that's trying to make money in a legitimate way. Be careful. It's very easy to become a spectator and to watch the clouds and to sit back and and not do anything but think that there's progress because you would say, well, I've been thinking. Here's what you should do. You should surround yourself with people that will look outside and say, hey, it looks like rain, but praise God for the fact that thousands of years ago, it seems as if he put it on the hearts of the Egyptians to invent umbrellas. It seems like rain. Let's grab an umbrella and get to work. Surround yourself with people who do great things for the Lord. In inopportune times, surround yourselves with people that are actually about the work, that are on the ground, and they're starting to do things. I praise God because I feel like we have a church right now that's littered with tons of folks that have done things like that. I'm grateful for Marcus and Wes and and Tanner and Mike and Mike and who uh, all the rest of the guy Eddie and Dominic that. All it like, it looks like rain in all of their lives. From taking care of family that's sick to full-time jobs to taking pay cuts so that they can work out to (laughs) Tanner trying to mentor young African-American men as a white dude. He's saying, "Uh, I don't have some of the most basic things to teach them how to be a black man, but I can teach them how to be a man. I, 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 I can do what I have. And so you have, listen, and so you have all of these folks that are saying, I don't want to look to the clouds. I'll glance at them, but I'm not going to, I don't have to worry. God has this covered, but I'm going to work. I'm grateful for the folks that are doing Oaks, ATL, and English Avenue, where you look, and the way that things are starting to trend, people look and say, well, in five years with the stadium, gentrification's going to hit, and the same kids that are there now, they won't be there in five years. So I don't know if I want to pack up my life and move there because things are going to change. But they said things may change in five years, but they are the way that they are now. So I'm just going to glance at that. But do you know what? I'm going to move in, and I'm going to help, and I'm going to serve, and I'm just going to start and do what I can a little bit at a time. And we're praising God that now there are kids that did not know Jesus, that are now enamored and in love with him based on the example that they see. And that comes from people that don't look to to the clouds or don't stare, but know that we don't have to worry. That's God's job. We work where we can. What are you doing right now? Here's what I want you to do. Not just this week, but Every week that you come in, I see lots of y'all with pens and you're starting to write stuff. The quotes on the screen, the outline and the words, all of those can be sent 
to you, but what you can do is just sit down on your page and as God impresses on your heart to do something, to say, Lord, I don't want to worry, but I think that you've called me to do this and I'm going to do this. And pray that God would provide the strength for us not to worry, but to work. And that takes place as we live in the moment and we look towards the future. As we look to the future, we close our mouths. We don't stare. Acts 1, Jesus is being ascended to the clouds, and the disciples stand there, and they just watch, and the angels say, what are you doing? Don't just watch him. Don't worry. He's going to come back, but in the meantime, get out and work. So we look, but we don't stare, and here's why we don't stare, because The more that we stare, the more we try to calculate what's going to go wrong. And I want you to know, you can't predict the future. Look at the person next to you and say, you don't know. (laughs) You can't. You can't predict the future. But here's what you and I want want to do. Listen, we want to live in such a way where I'm only going to work on things that I know will work, right? Weddings, right? This is great. Like, like it's like, all right, it's, it's, it's going to be hard work for me to get there on time. And depending on who's getting married, I want to know, is it going to start on time? If I think that it is, then I'll work hard and I'll get there. Ah, but if, it's, if I don't think that it's going to start on time, I mean, I don't want to work and be there on time and it not start, the mystery of things tends to drain us of the manpower that we should use to work. And here's the third point that we see here in the text. The third point is this. Let mystery fuel your manpower. Mystery, the fact that things may or may, may not work, it's not meant to suck out of the, the manpower out of you. It's actually meant to be the very fuel that makes you work harder. Look here in verse 5. And it starts off, this is just as you do not know the path of the wind or how bones develop in the womb of a pregnant woman, so also you don't know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening do not let your hand rest. Why? Because you don't know which one will will. Uh, will you see that's the reason the fuel for the hard work is that there's mystery in what you do you don't know what the outcome will be whether one or the other or if both of them will equally be good and I just want you all to see this he writes all of this stuff to help you know it's not frustrating it's freeing to know I don't know when I don't have to know that point in verse 5 where he says you don't know how bones grow in the womb this has become increasingly more true for me in the past week because um, as I'm holding my daughter in the NICU and things are starting to go off and I'm hearing all of these sounds, right? I'm concerned and I'm worried. And so I look over and the nurses are chilling. And I call my I'm like, hey, there's a beep here. Hey, she's, she's moving. Hey, I, I, I don't know what to do. And worried and these nurses are the sweetest old lady, but in the sweetest way possible, what they say is, sweetheart, 
why don't you do your job <laughs> and parent and let me do mine? They, they say, I've been here 25 years. You don't have to worry about a thing. Worrying is exhausting, and it doesn't add to anything. Work, just, just enjoy your daughter and be a parent and do your work. In the same vein, this is brought up to help us see, listen, God has the worrying covered. That's his job. God's saying, listen, you don't have to try to take my job. It's freeing to know this. My ignorance of things doesn't keep them from working. I don't know how the sun rises, but it does rise every morning. I don't know how planes fly, but I get on one and I fly and we set down. I don't know how the AC, it's, I don't know how oxygen works, but it works. My ignorance doesn't keep things from working. That's freeing to not know, to not have to know. God knows all of that. God is reliable and he's trustworthy like Trip prayed. Every morning the sun will get up at the same time. And you know that when Monday comes and you don't want to get up, but that sunlight creeps through your blinds and you're frustrated, be frustrated at the consistency of God. God keeps things working so we don't have to be concerned with that. What you and I can do is work. Verse 6, in the morning, sow your seed, and at evening, do not let your hand rest. And so what he's trying to say here is take advantage of every opportunity that comes your way to do good. Don't pick and choose. Don't say, I'm going to choose this time or I'm going to choose this time. Don't procrastinate. Procrastination is pride because it says in our hearts, I know what's going to be better or what will yield the most fruit. And we don't know, but God does. And so it's saying this, that because we don't know what will work, that tells us one thing. There is no guarantee to all of our work. But because we don't know what will work, we don't know what things we do will be a game changer. And so God has the freedom to take any instance of what we do and make it a game changer to, to change things. He goes on and he'll use that word evening. And that could mean spend all your day trying to do as much as you can, which I think that is right. Or it could mean this too, and we'll get on to this next week. In the evening of your life, in your old age, as time winds down, here's one way that we waste our lives by regretting what we haven't done. To regret wasted time is a waste of time. So what he's saying is if you still have breath, if you're old and gray, if you feel like, man, I've missed out on my chance, don't feel that way. You don't have to take every opportunity that we've had to do good doesn't have to have been capitalized on because God is the one that's in control. 
And it only takes one time. This is what frees us up in evangelism and being able to share our faith. Because we know that at the end of the day, all we have to do is do the work and we don't have to worry about the results. That's in God's hands. So when we share our faith and use every opportunity that we can to tell poor people that have squandered their life, poor folks spiritually that have squandered their life and have failed to do all the good that they could do that they will have to give an account for, we can tell them of a God Jesus, who not, Jesus didn't just not do wrong, but he did everything right. So when we talk about the justification that we have, when we talk about being seen as right in Christ and in God's eyes, that for those of us that turn from our sin and put our trust in Jesus, it's not just that God is not mad at us. It's that God is as pleased with us as he is with his son. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's what we rest in. So as we tell people about this God, and we know the results are up to God, what you and I have to know and to be free to feel is this. Evangelism is not twisting anybody's key to come and to know the Lord. Evangelism is turning the key that will open the door of God's blessings in their life. And it is a key that God has left under the mat for us so we know that it works. We're free to do and to work. The results and the outcomes are God's. And so in that way, mystery fuels our manpower because we know that at any time, anything that we do has the potential to change somebody's life. And as I talk about life changes, we do come to a close. I just want to make this calf epithet right here. I've talked a lot about evangelism because I feel like as Christians, we have both a greater work and a greater assurance than just meeting needs that are in this life. Hear me. I am not saying that we shouldn't meet needs in this life. We should. And we should spend our lives in the morning and in the evening working tirelessly as much as we can. What I'm saying is, and we should be just as diligent about giving people the gospel. Here's why. There will come a time in eternity where people's present economic position will not matter. There will never be a time in eternity where people's eternal standing before God won't matter. And more than that, the reason why you go through the Bible and you see it taking root in the lives of people that have found themselves oppressed and low and poor is that Paul from prison can write, even though I'm in jail and I'm wrongly accused, I want you to know I'm good. Because one day, the state that I'm in, it's not, it's not, it's, it's not going to matter. But he's going to say, do all that you can to get me out. But if there's no hope, even if God does not get us out, 
then that's hard. And so what we're saying is, you know, we have a greater work than being able to provide hope into the hearts of folks that are gone. And we have a greater assurance because we know that God will use it all. And the way that we don't, the way that we keep from wasting our lives is that we live in the moment, but we look towards the future, not our own, but somebody else's. As we look, we, we look, but don't stare. Because if we stare, we try to make sense of the mysteries that are meant to be left there so that they fuel our manpower so that we know every time I talk about the gospel, that could be the very time that God decides to use it to change somebody's life. So it doesn't make me look for, all right, when is this going to be the best time? It's saying every time is the, the, the perfect time. In conclusion, this frees us, if we really believe that this is true, this frees us from the fear of failure because we know we are going to fail. There is one person whose work yields the exact outcome that they thought that it would. God. God says, let there be light. God looks at light and says, yep, that's just what I thought it would be. Man, yep, that's just what I thought it would be. Land, see, yep, that's all good. You and I don't have that. It's all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work my heart and I'm going to do my best, God, to preach this sermon. And then I go home and folks say, how'd it go? And I say, eh, I thought it was all right. But all what I said was true. And I know that God, though it's imperfect, all of your work is perfect. So if I join on and work alongside you, even the ways that I blunder and I mess up in, in, in this life, you're going to use those so that at the end of the time, you'll look and say, yep, this is exactly how I planned. And he used all of us in it. And so I say all of that to know, no. The best way to not waste your life is not to hoard it, to give it away generously, freely, work hard. Be ambitious for God's glory. Have dreams. Share those dreams. And know that as you work hard for God and the greater work that he's called us to, we have a greater assurance that he's going to use it all for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would use our work for your glory, not our own. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.